0: This program is made possible by members and donors, so a huge thanks to everyone who contributes on Patreon to support the show. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the phenomenon of conspiracy theories, from the psychology behind them, their relationship to politics, and a look at some of the current conspiracies we're dealing with. Clips today come from Point of Inquiry, You Are Not So Smart, Inquiring Minds, Revolutionary Left Radio, and The Daily.
1: what's the purpose of a conspiracy theory why is it that people hold on to conspiracy theories and that's an interesting question and i think um what is happening there is that people are in you know they have a need to explain bad things um let's look at something tragic like the uh, boston bombing or the 911 uh, terrorist attacks i mean those are horrible horrifying events and in a sense, they were completely random. They were unexpected. They came out of nowhere, uh, and and that's what makes them incredibly frightening. Because the fact that they are unpredictable, random, and boom, all of a sudden they're there. That that's scary, isn't it? It's really scary. So how do you deal with that? Well, one way in which people can deal with scary events is to create a an explanation that that puts some sense into this uh event and it turns out there's data to suggest that um if you explain something through a conspiracy and by having an enemy that that is actually making you feel better it is
2: actually giving you a sense of control as a person um that if you can explain an un- unexpected event through an, a malicious enemy that's out to get you That sounds terrible, but in actual fact, it gives people a sense of control, makes them feel
3: better. So this leads to the question that I think I was thinking as I read your papers a lot, which is, is there something unique about conspiratorial thinking or is it just part of a person's array of responses to situations? In other words, is there something about this particular way of thinking that's a syndrome or that a certain kind of person does all the time or is it just you know you face uncertainty uh, you need an answer or you face uh a, a let's call it an assault on ideology you need an answer you need to know why the other people are wrong and so you just your mind just spins things out which which one is it
1: well i think it's a mixture of both uh i would i would uh, be inclined to say there there's some evidence that conspiratorial thinking is Usually fairly widespread, that if a person believes in one conspiracy theory, they're likely to believe in others as well. Uh, there is a statistical association. So people who think that MI5 killed Princess Diana, they probably also think that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald didn't act by himself when he killed JFK, but that they they're was, more
3: likely than just the average population. Exactly,
1: exactly. So there is a statistical association. People tend to cluster in such a manner that if they endorse one theory, they tend to also endorse others, um, and that association is actually fairly strong. So I think to some extent there there is a cognitive style there. That's what I would call it. I think it is just a way of looking at the world. Um, by, by having the style of thinking that invokes conspiracies very readily. So there are clearly people uh, uh who, who fall within that uh cluster of of uh uh thinking on the one hand. Um so on the other hand, however, I think it is also
2: uh situation specific. And let's talk about science a little bit, because the reason I got interested in conspiratorial thinking is um only because I'm I'm a scientist, and I'm passionate about being a scientist because I happen to think that that is probably the best way humans have discovered to date to understand the world around them.
3: We share that view on this show. I'm <laughs> sure you do.
2: And so I was fascinated by the fact that there are so many people out there who reject scientific findings uh, that they don't like for other reasons. Now, turns out, that if you look at that, if you look at science denial, you find that there's almost invariably uh, a conspiratorial streak to that um, rejection. So let me give you a few examples. Um, people who reject the link between HIV and AIDS uh, very often think that the U.S. government um, created AIDS God knows why. You know, there's a number of hypotheses that these people advance, but there's always a conspiratorial element in there. Um, people who reject, um, vaccinations in particular are often very, uh, aggressive in their rejection and resorting to conspiracies. Saying they think that
3: the government is involved somewhere or, or big pharma is involved. Big pharma
2: yeah. government, okay. indeed. So, um, and then finally, if you look at climate science, I think there it is perhaps uh more obvious than anywhere else. For example, we have a uh sitting US Senator um from Oklahoma and I,
1: I Senator should... Inhofe. Indeed, indeed. And I should add that I was at the University of Oklahoma for five years in the nineteen nineties, oh, okay. so I I have some <laughs> association with uh Oklahoma, although I've never met Senator Inhofe. Um now he wrote a book. Uh, last year called The Greatest Hoax, How the Global Warming Conspiracy Threatens Your Future.
3: Well, that puts it right front and center. <laughs> it does, doesn't yes. it? I mean, you know, he's saying, hey, hello, global
1: warming is a hoax. It's a conspiracy by scientists. Now, he's actually written a book with that title. Mm-hmm. And, well, what else do you need in a no, sense? a catchy title. <laughs> it's a catchy title. It's right out there. He's accusing scientists of uh, conspiring for god knows what reason i still haven't understood what we we're supposed to be doing and why
3: we're doing well, they think fact. it's a, they think it's ideological they think that you want to bend uh, bend the world's governments to your way of seeing
1: things. oh yes yeah. the world government world. indeed yes absolutely
3: <laughs> that's i mean it is it, i mean but but just to be fair they think it's an ideology counter to theirs and you do anything you can to advance it including making the puppets move Exactly.
1: <laughs> That's
2: exactly what it
3: is. Now, what's
1: interesting about this is that um, when you start to think about it, given how overwhelming the evidence is in all the cases that I've mentioned, when you're looking at HIV and AIDS, when you're looking at the effectiveness of vaccinations, when you're looking at the evidence for climate change, it is so absolutely overwhelming that if you can't handle that, what are you going to do? other than invent a conspiracy amongst the scientists. I mean, in a sense, it's a very logical thing to do. If 97 out of 100 climate scientists tell us that the globe is warming from greenhouse gas emissions, well, and you don't like that for whatever reason, maybe because you got money from Exxon, um, what are you going to do about it? Well, really... The only thing you can do is to say, well, those 97 out of 100 climate scientists are engaged in a conspiracy. And so a lot of people are now saying that. And it's exactly the same with AIDS denial. Uh, You know, the evidence is absolutely, totally overwhelming. So how do you dismiss that? Well, President Mbeki of South Africa, who rejected the evidence uh, that linked HIV to AIDS, um, he called it racist Western medicine and therefore was able to dismiss it basically by invoking uh, a conspiracy. And the same is true wherever you look. When there is science denial involved, the people who don't like the science are often invoking a conspiracy.
3: I'm interested to unpack a little more the trait aspect of this. Uh, you know, you you said it's in part a cognitive style, a way of thinking – does that is there something more deep, some other kinds of set of traits, some kind of person? I mean, we hear the word paranoid a lot. Uh,
1: yes, there uh, uh, that is correct. There is again a statistical association between the propensity to uh, endorse conspiracy theories and um, some paranoia, some tendency to to feel uh, persecuted. Um, and there's also an association between people's um, disgruntlement and their disappointment uh, with society and their economic insecurity that predicts uh, whether or not they're likely to endorse conspiracy theories. So there is a literature that is painting a fairly consistent picture of what kind of people tend to engage in conspiracy theorizing.
4: The structure of a conspiracy essentially divides the world into three kinds of people. There are the people who commit the conspiracy, the conspirators. They uh, generally are perceived of as being incredibly evil, cartoon, you know, mustache-twirling evil. They have amazing resources and can concoct these fabulously complicated plans. But at the same time, they're incredibly naive and stupid because they have to be in order to expose themselves to to some extent. And then there's the... Um, the army of light right the people who can see the who can see the conspiracy for what it is that are trying to save the world from the evil uh, conspirators and then there's the vast majority of everybody else who are the dupes the sheeple right every everyone else in the world so that's the that's the world according to the conspiracy theorist they're in the army of light they've seen the conspiracy and everyone else is too stupid to say it
5: so um and you mentioned this earlier um what is What's strange about this to me is that um, it seems to be part of and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to be just sort of part of the way we're naturally built to think about things and there can be uh, Certain triggers in the environment can cause a, a person who would normally consider themselves to be rational to start to kind of fall into this sort of thinking. Is that, would you say that's true?
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we all have a little conspiracy theorist living inside of us, right? We all tend to be a little paranoid to think, hmm, how could these things fit together? Is this all just a coincidence? We don't, we inherently don't like coincidences, apparent patterns. They speak to us. They 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 emotionally respond by saying, "Oh, that's something real there." We don't like you know dismissing apparent patterns as just coincidence or illusion, and so we look for the hidden hand, the 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 meaning, you know. And when you are trying to connect events and explain apparently disconnected events or apparent anomalies by saying, "Well, that's because there is this malevolent intelligence behind it all who's controlling everything." That's a conspiracy theory. So it's a form of pattern recognition in order to generate a narrative um, that makes sense of a, compl- a complex world. And you know, you could make um, – I hate to resort to hand-waving sort of neuropsychological arguments, but it certainly makes sense that we would um, have some tendency to look out for ourselves, to be on the lookout for people conspiring against our interests. Um, you know, but we, we evolved, of course, in small tribes, you know, where like, you know, a couple of people could be banding up against us. But now that same um, mental hardwiring exists in a worldwide complicated civilization. But we apply sort of the same pattern recognition and saying, oh, there's there are the forces are conspiring against me. But these forces are now governments or mm-hmm. institutions. You know, it's generational. It's not just a, a few people who live near me.
5: And it always seems to me that it's like um, conspiracy theories are are projected toward things that are just very complicated to understand. And it like takes something that's this thing that has lots of moving parts is very complicated. There's more to it than uh, there are more people involved you could ever meet and talk to. And then it turns it into something really, really, really simple. You know, like the uh, it's like taking something very complex and making it super simple and easy to pick apart in some way.
4: Yeah, I mean, partly it's uh, a desire for simplicity and understanding. I'm going to make sense of this wide array of events and factoids by saying it's everything is created by the conspiracy. Any evidence that's there that was put there by the conspirators, any evidence that's missing that was hidden by the conspirators. And so there's no once you're inside that that mental framework, there's no way out. It's a self-contained belief system. No evidence can convince you
5: that the conspiracy is not true because that was just planted. Is, conspiracy theories are such a fascinating thing about the human mind because um, I'm reminded of um, you know ant spirals, the ant death spirals, where the uh, mm-hmm. where ants get into a, a um, sort of a feedback loop where they can't stop themselves from going round and round and round. Um, it always conjures up that image in me in my mind because it's like. Um, the several of the elements of uh the way we you know make sense of the world and the the way that we um try to logically go about uh disassembling experience can get us caught in this weird loop that's almost inescapable um how would you recommend that if you're one-on-one with someone who is deeply invested in conspiracy theory what would be the best way do you think to proceed to try to try to knock them out of that loop
4: Oh, I don't have any magical solution to that. I don't think that there's any formula or any single approach that works because of exactly what you're saying. I, I like the analogy of the ant death spiral. Uh, you know, we like to think of ourselves as um, like completely free thinkers. But in fact, you know, we, we are following algorithms just like ants are. Just our mental algorithms are a lot more sophisticated and complicated. The The solution is that you have to get out of that algorithm to, That's, again, the metacognition. You have to think about your own thought processes, um, you know, as much as you can, you know, and and even thinking about the way that you think about your thought processes. Um, Because, you know, we're just otherwise that we tend to default back to our biases and our mental pathways of least resistance. Um, So. When people are stuck in a in an isolated belief system like that, a, a closed off belief belief system, there is no way to get through to them. By definition, um, all you can do is is just be you know persistently try to get them to think you know about that very fact itself. Try you know. Try to get them to think about the way they're approaching the evidence, the fact that they're not being open to the outside, and it'll either resonate with them or it won't. You'll, you'll get through or you won't. I, and I have gone through to people, um, although not not uh, usually one on one, but you know, like through my podcast. But that's because you know I get to talk to tens of thousands of people at once, and so when you when you're dealing with those kind of numbers, yeah, people email me and will and will say that you know they did. Um, come out of that way of thinking over time like eventually we sort of broke through we cracked through but the probability of doing that uh, in, on any individual is uh, statistically remote i mean you know belief systems are very good at protecting themselves
0: We all have one week left to make a difference in this year's election. Flipping the House to Democratic control is the key to regaining some degree of balance in the government, because if that happens, many strong progressives will sit as the heads of many powerful congressional oversight committees. Every phone bank call made, every door knocked, and every vote cast for any House and Senate Democrat is a vote for what Trump and the Republican Congress fear most, Democrats with subpoena power, and getting there is going to take grassroots volunteer power. Thank <laughs> you. Swing Left is helping organize volunteers to win as many of this year's swing elections as possible. When you join at swingleft.org slash left, you'll be immediately connected with other volunteers in your area who are working to win the race in a nearby swing district. You'll find out where and how you can make the most impact on flipping the house starting right now. We all must do more than vote this year. We need to get fired up, get off the couch, and volunteer. Join Swing Left to find your nearest swing district and take action now. Sign up now at swingleft.org slash left.
6: Well, we generally find that there are two types of conspiracy theories that clump together. There are the ideological conspiracy theories. And what we find there that those tend to be more polarized. So the 9-11 truth or conspiracy theory tends to be a more liberal conspiracy theory. The birther conspiracy theory is a more conservative one. And those you don't see a strong correlation between. Then there are the non-ideological conspiracy theories that are uniformly embraced across the spectrum. And for example, the conspiracy theory about the Food and Drug Administration is one that's held on both sides of the aisle. And those types of conspiracy theories do tend to correlate with the ideological ones. So if I have an ideological conspiracy theory on the right, for example, I'm less likely to to endorse a left-wing conspiracy theory, but I'm probably more likely to endorse a non-ideological one.
7: What are some examples of non-ideological ones? I I think the the FDA one that you mentioned probably falls in that category.
6: Sure. So uh, conspiracy theories, for example, about uh, fluoride in the water, that this is uh, a campaign from mining companies, the way of dumping phosphate, Uh, vapor trails left by airplanes as a program of secret government spraying Um, Those are two common non-ideological conspiracy theories.
7: There seems to be a thread in a number of the the conspiracy theories that you cite that have this, and I don't have a better way of putting it, anti-science bend to them. Do you see a pattern with some of these theories that seem to run counter to what, what scientific beliefs tend to tell you?
6: Well, one of the things that struck us when we were trying to understand who believed in conspiracy theories and why they believed in conspiracy theories, we started asking people about a lot of other types of beliefs. And one of the biggest predictors of whether or not someone believed in a conspiracy theory was if they had a lot of other supernatural beliefs and particularly fundamentalist Christian beliefs. And uh, one of the reasons why those two things go together is that we argue that both a lot of, supernatural beliefs and mythologies relate to what we would call an intuitive way or intuitive mindset, an intuitive way of understanding the world. And an intuitive way of understanding the world is informed both by emotions. So if I feel afraid, I look for sources of fear in my environment. um, And then it's a heavy reliance on what psychologists call heuristics. And these are these shortcuts that we use to make judgments about the world. And so a common heuristic, for example, would be uh, what they call a representativeness heuristic. So I see something that looks like a snake, I'm assuming it's going to be dangerous if it has a snake morphology. Or if I see something that looks like a spider, I'm assuming it's going to be dangerous, even if it's not poisonous. And I use that representativeness heuristic. And so what are intuitive minds do is they draw on our emotions. And if we're feeling afraid, they're looking for sources of fear. And then they're looking to placate our fears by grappling on to those explanations that coincide with our common sense. And our common sense would be these types of heuristics that we use, these judgmental shortcuts we employ. And if you look at both mythologies and conspiracy theories, a lot of them employ these same types of heuristics. I think one of the common ones that they both employ is an anthropomorphizing heuristic. So if something is happening in the world, there must be an intentional force that's making it happen. And that's, I think, a much more commonsensical way of understanding things than trying to explain events relative to systematic, dispassionate forces that are probabilistic. Our minds don't do well with conditional probabilities. We do not accept those things easily. We have to get trained into them. Even scientists do not do conditional probabilities habitually. It's something that we really have to learn to do.
7: I, I mean, I think you're touching upon something that is part of our sort of human frailty, if you will. That is a tough thing for humans to to deal with. Uh, just because we're on a rock, like soaring through like a mostly empty cosmos, is not is not the most comfortable feeling. I think for For most humans, Uh, it just to dig down on this, like some of the ideas that you're talking about here, they don't feel new. That distinction has probably existed for the last, you know, 100, 100 years. Uh, Is is that true? And and if so, what has changed in recent times? So
6: the way we describe
7: this is that uh, our country is not simply
6: divided by ideology or social class or race we would suggest that it's also divided by worldview. And on one side of this worldview are people who rely heavily on their intuitions. And we label these types of people intuitionist. And on the other side of the spectrum are people we would call rationalists, And they have a worldview. That's really something that's become much more common with the enlightenment or since the enlightenment. And it's based on reason and logic and deduction. And, you know, ideas are adjudicated in relation to observable facts Whereas you know, intuitionists rely on their emotions, they rely on symbols and metaphors, they rely on these heuristics for making sense of the world. And they have what would probably be best described as kind of a more pre-enlightenment mindset. Now, most people have a combination of these two. We're all born as natural intuitionists. And what happens is we get schooled out or or we either get schooled out of this by learning about rational systems and learning about science and scientific ways of understanding the world, or we are actually in belief systems, like, for example, a lot of churches that reinforce our intuitive proclivities. And so this tension has been going on at least since the Enlightenment. And if you look at U.S. political history, for example, there are there's a long, long trajectory of conspiracy theories that go back... Really, to the country's founding, and you can find historical evidence and you know ideas of secret plots from uh, the British that were there around the time of the Revolution. If you go to the early 19th century, you can have there are big conspiracy theories about uh, the Masons and about the Illuminati and about the Catholic Church. Um, the conspiracy theories go forward, uh, and in the later 19th century, uh, Jews are oftentimes the targets of conspiracy theories, or uh, East Coast capital and banks. Um, and so this this tension is is
7: permeates American history. Talk about who what kind of people have these beliefs, their demographics, their their background. And are we seeing an acceleration of the pace of the spreading of these beliefs?
6: So the types of people who are more likely to rely on their intuitions, and these are the types of people who are also more likely to embrace conspiracy theories, are people who are typically uh, less educated. Um, they tend to be at the lower end of the economic spectrum, but it's more because of their financial stress. It's uh, when we ask people both their income and their level of financial anxiety, financial anxiety is a much bigger predictor of the types of people who tend to score high uh, on these intuitionist beliefs. Uh, They tend to be people who are raised in conservative religious traditions. Women tend to be a little bit more intuitionist than men. They tend to be people who have... What a lot of social scientists describe as authoritarian child rearing ideas. And so they really like strict uh, parenting and obedient children. And uh, that's oftentimes described as an indicator of an authoritarian personality. Uh, They tend to be people who are what psychologists would also say low in need for cognition, i.e., they're not the type of people who really are interested in explanations for things. They don't like crossword puzzles. They don't like history. They don't like. They tend also to rely heavily on their common sense. If you ask them how they make their judgments, they tend to say, well, I go with my gut. They trust their heart more than their head. And so that is the the more or less the demographic profile. Although I want to stress that this also extends, you know, we have intuitionists, you know, with PhDs and we have rationalists, you know, who never proceeded past high school. So um, there is noise here, but uh, these are sort of the general trends.
7: But what I'm also hearing is that these are things that cross uh, our ideological divides, our our partisan divides. So uh, do we see liberals have this this sort of breakdown just as much as conservatives do, uh, especially those under financial stress, as you said?
6: Right. Well, this is where, for us as political scientists, it got very interesting because we find that conservatives are twice as likely to embrace a lot of these intuitionist proclivities as liberals. And this, I think, speaks to a big change in the American political and social climate over the past 50 years. If you go back to the early 1960s, nearly all Americans said that they believed in God, and most Americans were very enthusiastic about science. And what we've seen here is a big polarization on those dimensions. We have fewer Americans believing in God now and we have also fewer Americans believing in science and those two groups are really separating themselves apart. They're also aligning themselves ideologically. And so you have liberals now who are proclaiming, we believe in science and rejecting prayer in public schools, for example. And on the flip side of that, you have a lot of conservatives who reject evidence about climate change and are also embracing ideas about the forthcoming rapture or the apocalypse. And they think that that's going to be imminent.
0: now for the Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races in battleground districts that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make the biggest impact possible in the election on November 6th. As of the release date of this episode, we are exactly one week out from Election Day.
8: So let's do a little visualization exercise for a moment. Imagine that it's next Tuesday night and the election returns are coming in. Now imagine that Democrats don't pick up enough seats to take control of the Senate or lose seats they had. Now imagine waking up the next morning to Trump proclaiming ultimate victory and an unequivocal mandate for his horrific, hate-filled agenda that most Republicans support. Now how do you feel? Do you feel like you did enough? Do you wish you had done more? How do you think the most vulnerable and disenfranchised among us will be feeling at that moment? Remember those feelings and keep them with you in this final week because this is quite literally the last chance to make a difference before Election Day. And because of that, today we're going to tell you four things that you can do to make that difference over the next seven days.
0: Don't forget to check the show notes, because along with links to these resources, we're also going to list and link to 10 toss-up gubernatorial races across the country, six of which are open-seat races previously held by Republicans. Of course, information for all the battleground races and ways to get involved can be found at the Midterms Minute HQ at bestoftheleft.com midterms. And now, without further ado, here are the top four things you can do this week to make a difference on Election Day.
8: Number one, donate. This last week is going to require many, many hours of campaign workers' time, and those people need to be paid and given lots of free coffee and pizza. Ads need to be run, signs need to be printed, canvassing and phone banking materials need to be at the ready, volunteers need to be trained and managed. Your donations can help candidates run a strong get-out-the-vote effort in these final days. If you don't know where to start, check out the DCCC Red to Blue program at redtoblue.dccc.org and donate to a few candidates or easily support all candidates listed with one donation. To help Senate candidates, visit dscc.org and contribute. If you're only interested in donating to toss-up races, check out the links in our previous segments which can be found at the Midterms Minute HQ.
0: Number two, phone bank. If you have even an hour to give, virtual phone banking is for you. Both Indivisible and Swing Left have selected races where candidates can benefit the most from phone banking, and you can sign up for a shift and get started in seconds. Indivisible is hosting phone banking for a mix of House, Senate, and gubernatorial candidates, so if that's what you're looking for, go to indivisible.org slash phonebank to get started. If you're interested in focusing on tight races for the House, go to swingleft.org. Scroll to the very bottom of the website and select volunteer from anywhere under the take action column. Never phone banked before? No problem. Swing left offers plenty of resources for newbies.
8: Number three, volunteer. Yes, this requires more of your time, but it is so impactful and it can even be fun. Grab a friend and sign up to canvas a neighborhood for a candidate near you, or go to a phone banking event organized by the local DNC office, a candidate's campaign, or a political action group. When you see other people actively engaged, you're going to feel better, and you might meet some new friends along the way. One way to quickly find an event near you is by going to indivisible.org events for a national list of local Indivisible Group volunteer events. Otherwise, check out your local DNC website or specific candidates' websites for more volunteer opportunities.
0: And number four, talk to your friends and family. The current political climate has strained many a relationship, but if you know someone who is undecided or someone who will vote but isn't engaged, talk to them in person if possible. Have a discussion about civic action and all the personal reasons you have for getting involved. Lead them to resources. Invite them to volunteer with you. These conversations can be game changers for those who may feel disillusioned or don't feel like politics really affects them. Additionally, as I've mentioned before, you can use the OutVote app to find and send text messages to people in your network who may need a little extra encouragement. As a reminder, voter purging is happening across the country, so we urge you to confirm your voter registration ASAP. Visit headcount.org and click Verify Your Registration Status under the Voting Info tab. There, you can quickly be directed to your state's specific website to confirm your voter registration. If there's a problem, call 866-OUR-VOTE to report the problem and get guidance. If your registration is okay, help someone else confirm theirs or obtain the necessary ID they need to ensure there are no surprise problems on Election Day. Links to all the information you heard today, as well as additional resources, are linked in the show notes. And today's Midterms Minute, along with all of our election information, can be found at bestoftheleft.com slash midterms. So if making the blue wave a reality in November is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting Democrats and battleground races across the country via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. As a listener of this show, you already know that big corporations are getting rich from selling your data. Thanks to Congress and the FCC, internet providers and mobile carriers like Comcast and Verizon are free to restrict websites, spy on your online activity, and sell your browsing history to advertisers. In short, you simply have to be proactive to protect your privacy, and with one click, ExpressVPN shields your online activity from internet and mobile providers, hackers, and spies. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, and tablet, securing and anonymizing your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. I've been using ExpressVPN myself on multiple devices, and it's been running smooth as silk. But it's not just me. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. You can get ExpressVPN protection for less than $7 a month, and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you have nothing to lose but all those electric prying eyes following you around the web. To take back your internet privacy today and find out how you can get three months free, go to expressvpn.com left. That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash left for three months free with a one year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash left to learn more.
9: many people are aware of, you know, like the Pepe the Frog alt writers and Richard Spencer, neo-fascist, and the KKK, Um, but can you talk about some of the more obscure and less well-known strains of fascist thought?
10: Sure, sure. Um, I think uh, what people don't realize a lot about the alt-right and the Pepe memes and things like that is that they actually are tied in certain ways to the less-known strains of the far-right. One of the things that has really dominated uh, this movement. That we're broadly calling the alt right now, but really come out of various strands of white nationalism from Europe and from other pseudo intellectual spaces, is a focus on esoteric ideas, um, mm-hmm. primarily what was called traditionalism, basically a philosophy that saw um, the hierarchies of religions and the stratifications therein as sacred, um, and around kind of esoteric philosophers like um, Julius Evola. Mm. That, while kind of unknown to a lot of population, actually motivates a great deal of alt-right and neo-reactionary thought. Uh, at the same time, um, what I talk about in my book a lot is folkish heathenry, which is uh, basically the revival of Nordic or Northern European pagan religions, um, but with a racial motivation. It kind of uses an old-fashioned interpretation of Carl Jung that uh, archetypes the gods. Uh, of myth are kind of baked into the psyches of white people, and that we have to kind of reclaim our natural way of understanding them. Um, The purpose of these things, beyond being kind of esoteric and allowing people to jump into arcane volumes, is to give their ideology a sense of depth and to make it beyond politics. It's actually something spiritual and transcendental. Um, that influences quite a bit um, of the alt-right, even if they don't always take it uh, as literal or on its face value. Um, another one, another kind of uh, a sector of this are the the very far-right interpretations of Christianity, which are waning to a degree, uh, one being Christian identity, which is tied to a lot of kind of acts of spontaneous violence in the 80s and 90s uh these are churches that do kind of i guess heretical readings of the bible See jews is actually the spawn of satan people of color don't have souls and they're actually animals that need to be controlled by white people um another version of this is called kinism it's i guess slightly less repulsive um but still being pretty disgusting um and where basically they think that that uh that in the Bible it sets down parameters for what a church should be and it should be monoracial and should create separations between races. These have had a lot of influence for a long time, but as white nationalism kind of moves out of the countryside to a degree, um, it just become less influential. And frankly, Christianity is not in vogue in white nationalist communities in the way that it once was. And so a lot of these kind of more odd channels, uh like heathenry, like esoteric stuff, like a cult interpretations, those are getting a lot more currency. Um, I talk a little bit about Neo Reaction. This is sort of like a cousin to the alt-right, really heavy in Silicon Valley. It's based around a few kind of um, obscure philosophers in the Silicon Valley scene, um, focusing really heavily on uh, retracing monarchism, recentering Traditional hierarchies, again focusing on a very, you know, racist pseudoscience, and really attacking democracy as a concept. And so, what they're trying to do is recenter, uh, basically, uh, corporate elites as social elites in the same way. And this has just a ton of overlap with the alt right, including the same figures and funding sources and things like that. Um, and, and frankly, like this is only growing these kind of what we think of as the strange, weird fascists in a lot of ways are the status quo fascists today. And they're only getting stranger. They're only getting weirder.
9: <laughs> and there's a, there's actually a long history go, uh, stretching all the way back to Nazi Germany of like this fascination with occultism. Um, I know there's, there's a podcast that I like. It's not political. It's, it's more of a comedy podcast, but it studies conspiracy theories and like aliens and stuff. It's it's called last podcast on the left. And they do this whole series on. Yeah. yeah, Uh, You're familiar. Oh, yeah, definitely. They do this. Yeah, they do this whole subseries on Nazi occultism, which is just—it's funny. It's—it's it's an entertaining show, but it's also really informative. So I'd point people to go listen to that if they want to find more about these the roots of of occultism on the far right. But there's also like a huge in, infusion of conspiratorial thinking, um, and it, there always has been on the far right in the U.S. But certainly Infowars and, and people like Alex Jones perpetuate this conspiratorial thinking. So what role does that like sort of conspiracy thinking play on on the alt right today?
10: You have to have it on some level. It's impossible to have fascist ideas without some kind of sense of conspiracy. There's a few primary things, right? The uh, the most obvious is uh, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Jews controlling finance, the media, social systems, whatever. Um, Usually it's whatever the enemy of the day is. uh, Jews control it, uh, according to them. That's the most obvious version of it. But in reality, it's all baked into conspiratorial worldview um, at its very basic core. What fascists believe is that human beings are fundamentally unequal. They they disregard 99% of modern science of our understanding of technology of social history almost all of it and then replace it with their own version and for for those their version to be true there has to be mass mass conspiracies basically hiding us from the reality of the world Uh, a really good example is uh, a focus on egypt and there's a lot of focus um, from white supremacists on Egypt and trying to prove that ancient Egyptians were actually Europeans. Now, there's no evidence that's actually accepted <laughs> amongst anthropologists that that's true. It's just factually untrue. <laughs> yeah, if I was to Google search right now, I would find dozens, maybe hundreds of white supremacist websites proving the linkages, uh, showing falsified documents, saying that governments cover things up. Um, it requires a mass, mass global infrastructure of conspiracy to make what they think true. The same is true of race and IQ arguments. This stuff has been discredited for 70 years now, yet they keep drumming it up and saying that you know um, colleges, government institutions, media figures are, are hiding the truth about race differences in intelligence. Um, these are fundamentally untrue things, but it requires a conspiratorial worldview. I think with something like Alex Jones is he, he may drop the obvious racial connotations to the conspiracy, but he maintains the conspiracy infrastructure itself. So and this, we see this a lot in conspiracy circles that try and claim that they're non-racist. They'll essentially take an anti-Semitic conspiracy, change Jews to bankers or to Rothschilds or something like that. And continue the same logic mm-hmm. that there's a cabal of people who use cryptos to control things for their interests and not our own. What it does is it, it stops us from looking at social systems. It's not capitalism. It's these people, right? If only these people were gone, we could take care of capitalism ourselves. Uh, but it also uh, uh essentially keeps that mind going that there's always some kind of secret uh, group that 's not just for example a capitalist class but it is some other group that has some other interests that control things um, and and frankly as as distrust in dominant institutions continues for obvious and correct reasons um, conspiracy theories feed even bigger, and we see this anytime there 's actually a resurgence. Of uh, like left populism that's driven into organizing, conspiracy theories also grow.
11: Hello, Florida.
12: Kevin, what happened at this rally on Tuesday?
11: I am thrilled to be in this great state where we, by the way, had a great victory.
13: In some ways, it was a pretty typical Trump rally.
11: With thousands of hardworking American patriots who love our country and respect our great American flag.
13: Lots of supporters there. You had people booing the media. (laughs) And then you had this new element. They
14: wore shirts and signs emblazoned with only the letter Q.
15: The letter Q, as in the letter on the t-shirts of Trump supporters
16: in Tampa.
13: Which was that in the crowd behind and sort of around Trump, TV cameras picked up several people wearing t-shirts and holding signs that said Q.
12: And what does that refer to? Q.
13: Man, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> we could go on. i say usually
12: all. 20 to 25 minutes.
13: Okay. I'll try to condense it down. So Q is the central figure in a vast internet-driven conspiracy theory called QAnon. 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 Q-A-N-O-N, Q-A-N-O-N mm-hmm. for anonymous. This all started last October when an anonymous person posted on 4chan, the internet message board, Mm -hmm. calling themselves Q, which referred to Q clearance, which is sort of a high-level government security clearance. And the post sort of had a list of rhetorical questions about issues in the U.S. Like, does POTUS know where the bodies are buried? Does POTUS have the goods on most bad actors? Was Trump asked to run for president? Why? By who? Was HRC next in line? Was the election supposed to be rigged did good people prevent the rigging so these questions and the other hints that q began to drop in 4chan became known as crumbs
12: the intel comes directly to us and then we disperse it it's the only way q says people united hold
13: the power all of us. And people started following these and latching to these and sort of assembling them into a giant interconnected conspiracy theory. And what's the plot? So the plot is a little jumbled. There are many versions of it out there, but what most QAnon believers believe is that every president before Donald Trump was part of a nefarious group, a cabal of criminals.
4: Every president after Reagan was one of these deep state criminals. And their empire got even stronger. With each bad president came new depths, America and the world would sink.
13: And that they were in league with bankers and uh, heads of state.
15: In this fringy alternate universe, senior Democrats run a secret child sex trafficking network.
13: The deep state with child trafficking and that this goes back to the Rothschilds, who were a sort of financier family, typically associated with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, to the Seth Rich conspiracy theory about the death of a DNC staffer.
15: In this alternate universe, the special counsel investigation is actually just a cover to really take down Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama because they were corrupted by the Kremlin, another conspiracy theory.
13: It's all there. It's sort of like a potpourri of internet derangement. And this is all part of the theory that all of these powerful people are in league with a big and conspiratorial criminal enterprise.
17: QAnon claims that a shadowy cabal within the U.S. government is at war with President Trump and that the president will soon purge the country of these enemies.
13: In QAnon's telling, there is a group of sort of white hats who are people who are working on behalf of the people who are not part of this cabal, Mm -hmm. who convinced Donald Trump to run for president oh. so that he would be able to break up this cabal and expose the perpetrators and bring them to justice.
12: And how does all of this end in
13: Q's telling?
11: you guys know what this represents? What? Tell us, sir. Maybe it's the calm before the storm.
13: In October of last year...
11: What the storm could be the calm, okay. calm before the storm... <laughs>
13: President Trump made a sort of offhanded reference to the calm before the storm. Mm-hmm.
11: What storm, Mr. President? You'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> Give us a an hint. Uh, right. says- Thank you, everybody.
13: Okay. This was seized on by Q. And the storm, they think, is the sort of denouement of all of this. This is the culminating, climactic event that will result in the exposure of all of these criminals and the ultimate victory of truth and righteousness.
12: Okay, so, so Kevin, this sounds almost comically outlandish. It's hard to believe that it has many supporters.
13: Well, it didn't at first. I mean, it was a pretty fringe community. It started to pick up steam on YouTube and Reddit and Facebook. And then...
16: Roseanne keeps promoting QAnon, the pro-Trump conspiracy theory that makes Pizzagate look tame.
13: Some sort of fringe celebrities start tweeting about it and making references to it. So (laughs) Kurt Schilling, the former baseball player, Roseanne Barr, became a believer in QAnon.
16: Barr's plugging of QAnon's theories drew renewed attention this Friday when she tweeted... President Trump has freed so many children held in bondage to pimps all over the world.
13: There's a fairly large community of people who are invested in this narrative and looking for clues that what they believe is going to happen is, is actually going to happen.
12: And Kevin, what exactly is the connection between this nascent movement and President Trump beyond the fact that it seems to put him in a heroic place in its far-fetched
13: narrative. To be clear, President Trump has never mentioned QAnon or any of the sort of various threads of this conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. But QAnon believers who follow President Trump very closely mm-hmm. are convinced that he is dropping hints to them, that there are things that he is saying that align with this conspiracy theory and that ultimately this means that they are onto something. Like what? So... One example would be the number 17.
11: You know, I told the story the other day. I was probably in Washington in my entire life 17 times.
13: Q is the 17th letter of the alphabet. And so QAnon believers have latched onto this as sort of their number of significance. Hmm,
11: true, 17 times. I don't think I ever stayed overnight. You know what I'm getting at, right? Huh?
13: And they've found several instances in which... President Trump has said the number 17.
11: Again, I've only been here about 17 times. And probably seven of those times was to check out the hotel I'm building on Pennsylvania Avenue.
13: And they view this as proof that they are communicating with President Trump, that Q is a reliable source, and that this whole conspiracy theory makes sense. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. So...
12: Why does this matter, this absolutely fantastical conspiracy theory that that strains every ounce of credulity? Why are we talking about it?
13: It's a good question. I mean, I think that there is a responsibility in the media not to amplify conspiracy theories. I think for a long time, this was not worth talking about mm-hmm. in mainstream circles. But recently, it has started to move closer and closer to the mainstream. There have been several instances where Q's followers have turned up in physical places.
5: Sunay authorities in Nevada say a man barricaded himself in an armored vehicle near the Hoover Dam bridge this afternoon, demanding President Trump release reports. Our troopers say he was armed with a rifle and stopped traffic for about 90 minutes.
13: So just last month, a man armed with a a gun drove an armored truck to the Hoover Dam and blocked traffic while talking about this conspiracy theory. Hmm. They've turned up outside the office of Michael Avenatti, Stormy Daniels' lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I mean, QAnon started off as a fringe internet conspiracy, Mm -hmm. but it has found purchase with a fairly large group of Trump supporters to the point that they're now showing up at rallies with Q merchandise. And in your mind,
12: what is the significance of people from this group appearing at this rally in Florida?
13: I think it does a couple things. One, I think they believe it sort of brings the movement closer to the mainstream and and educates more people and Mm -hmm. brings them into the fold. But it's also kind of a signal to the people watching back at home that they're not alone. This isn't a tiny group of people, that this is a a growing network of people who understand something that no one else understands, that they share this secret knowledge with lots of other people, and that this is a source of power and legitimacy for them.
12: It also seems like it feeds the conspiracy by directly
13: connecting the QAnon
12: world to President Trump.
13: Yeah, and in fact, after the rally, I went on Facebook and I'm part of a QAnon Facebook group with about 40,000 other people. And what did you find? Well, here, here, let me just see if I can dig this up. Okay, let's see. One member says, this entire rally was to announce QAnon to the world. Another one says, Q is mainstream. Rejoice in Jesus's name. Mm. Oh, Sarah Sanders was asked about QAnon today. Hmm. Yeah,
0: but does First of all, does the president encourage the support of people who showed up last night in these QAnon and Blacks for Trump fringe groups? What'd she say? Uh,
13: she said...
8: Part, uh, the president condemns and denounces... Any group that would uh, incite violence against another individual um, and certainly doesn't support uh, groups that would promote that type of behavior. We've we've been clear about that a number of times uh, since the beginning of the administration. Hmm. On the second so
13: of- right away, people are sharing that clip in these groups. They're talking about how Sarah Sanders appears to be grinning that maybe she's hiding some secret knowledge that she has, Hmm. that this is all evidence that things are progressing the way that Q said they would. Hmm. And for them, this is a big deal. I mean, this is their first time being this close to the center of the political discussion.
12: It's almost like even though she's saying that the president denounces these kinds of groups, that there's legitimacy in even being asked about it at a place such prestige the white house press conference
13: exactly if you're being talked about you're winning and for these QAnon believers who see themselves as straining for legitimacy and recognition from president trump and people close to him that's a very affirming sign Hmm. and one other point i want to make on this is that i think part of why it's important to talk about this now is because these movements can lead to real world harm i mean there was the Case of Pizzagate, where this conspiracy theory about a child sex ring Mm -hmm. in the basement of a pizza shop in Washington, D.C., led someone to actually show up with a gun there. To the people who believe in QAnon, the extreme nature of the criminal activity that they believe is going on justifies almost anything to stop it. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, we have this idea that there are movements that happen on the internet and movements that happen in the real world, Mm -hmm. and that they're not always connected, and that somehow the stuff that happens online is less serious than the stuff that happens in the real world. But as we've seen with Charlottesville, Pizzagate, and now from QAnon, is that these internet-based movements can easily become real. Mm -hmm. They can make themselves real by making themselves visible, by appearing at rallies, by taking these real world actions. And I don't think we can meaningfully say that there's a difference anymore between an online movement and a real movement. Hmm. An online movement is a real movement. Yeah, I mean, people on the internet are real people. They, you know, get up from their computers and go to political rallies sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an underestimated force is where are these people congregating? What are they telling each other? And how might we be able to stop or limit the spread of some of these things. Well, we spend so much time talking to you, Kevin, about the responsibilities
12: and the capabilities of companies like Facebook, like Twitter, like YouTube, to stop this kind of stuff. So in the case of QAnon, what are the responsibilities and capabilities of something like Facebook to stop it in its
13: tracks? So there are some things that tech companies can do to combat the spread of misinformation and conspiracy theories, right? They can... Break up a group or take down a YouTube video, but ultimately they can't change what people want to talk about. We're really talking about a political problem here.
11: You are not allowed to be a president if you're not born in this country. He may not have been born in this country.
13: We are at a moment in our country's history where we have a president who is a sort of notorious conspiracy theorist mm-hmm. who came to political prominence by promoting a conspiracy theory about barack obama's birth certificate
11: i'll tell you what when you read the ig report with these really dishonest people and i was never a deep state guy let me tell you we got some bad people that are doing bad things but when you read that ig report about how she got away with what she got away with it's a disgrace it's a total disgrace
13: who has embraced conspiracy theories about the deep state and rigged elections. And Donald, I need to come back to the
10: topic we've been all screaming about here, which is Scalia, was he murdered? What do you think of that?
11: It's a horrible topic, but they say they found a pillow on his face, which is a pretty unusual place to find a pillow.
13: Who seems to be willing to give affirming statements to these groups rather than disavowing them to sort of give them a subtle indication that he's not troubled by it so a crumb exactly
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Point of Inquiry, speaking with Stephen Lewandowski about the psychology of conspiracy theorists. You Are Not So Smart talked with Stephen Novella from Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, who also helped explain conspiracy theories. Inquiring Minds interviewed Eric Oliver about how conspiracy thinking affects our politics. Revolutionary Left Radio explained why far-right-wing ideologies, especially fascism, requires conspiracy theories in order to survive. And finally, we just heard The Daily explain one of the most prominent conspiracy theories currently on the Trump-supporting wing of the right. Members will be getting a bonus episode with a additional clips on conspiracy theories. We're going to get into the details of a couple more theories, including the Seth Rich story and Pizzagate. Plus, I've got an extra clip that dissects how masterful people like Rush Limbaugh are at both spreading conspiracy theories while simultaneously disavowing those theories so that they can have it both ways, spreading vile theories that rile up anger against the left while maintaining plausible deniability for themselves. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about being a patron, visit patreon.com bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
15: Hi, Jay. It's Elizabeth again. First off, thank you for calling me out on the gender naming that was downright lazy of me. My oldest child actually is capable of becoming pregnant, however, does not identify as female. And it is a large part for them that I am holding to the litmus test. So when we talk about a parliamentary government, I would argue that it's not just a litmus test for being a Democrat, but I would consider it a litmus test as a rational society to uh, add the points that I brought up before of, number one, allowing people with uteruses to have control over their own uteruses, and number two, of making decisions based on science. So I get that there is a need to make compromise, I read a book, um, shoot, uh, How Democracies Die. And they pointed out that this is not the first time that our country has been so completely polarized. And time and time again, when we are brought to the brink, the way America has come together and stopped from falling apart entirely was to compromise specifically on issues of racism and specifically to allow White people to have their superiority in politics, and that is sort of the pacifier that allows the two sides to get along. I would argue that if the circumstance were different and we weren't talking about something like abortion, but we were talking ab- about something like should black people vote, then the litmus test idea would be much more obvious. I'm not equating 300 years of slavery and oppression completely to. Reproductive justice, what I'm saying is the mindset of people should be free should carry over. And I think that there is a common thread in a rational society that people should be free. And it's commonly understood, or rather, I'll just admit I don't have a good source for this. It's just I hear it all the time that um, one of the litmus tests for a first world country except for the U.S., of course, and for a rational society is how they treat their women and, you know, anyone who can get pregnant. So I appreciate your are bringing up the, the coalition and the parliamentary, and I'm going to stick with you at the litmus test. Thanks.
17: Hi, Jay. My name is Jordan. I'm calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I just want to say thank you for your show. I've been listening for a few years now. And it's uh, definitely helped me become more educated and more informed. And I recommend it to all of my friends. Um, I'm calling because a few episodes ago you had mentioned kind of these um, sort of success stories. And there was a woman who had called saying that she had... but been kind of politically inactive and disengaged for a while and then came back in to the circle and started making some making some political changes in the lives of folks around her. So I thought I would maybe kind of share my story with you and if this gets aired great, if not hopefully it's just some encouragement for you to keep doing what you're doing. So I grew up in the west in Wyoming in a very conservative family. And very right-wing, very racist, xenophobic, bigot, all of the things. And I went to a parochial school all the way through 12th grade. And I didn't really realize that there was kind of another side out there. I just knew that I was a Republican and I knew that I was conservative and I was religious and that was really my identity. I never really went out of my way or so I thought, maybe, to be cruel to anyone, but I kind of just knew that that was my identity and that's what I was going to stick to. I ended up going to the University of Colorado, and when that happened, kind of my worldview began to change. I was introduced to a lot of folks who I used to demonize, took some poetry classes, some people befriended me, who I never thought would have befriended me. I kind of just threw all of those ideas into this giant whirlwind of me kind of not really knowing who I was anymore. Anyway fast forward after college I didn't quite finish but I started making a lot more friends. Um, I was working in the service industry and again just my my friend groups became more and more diverse and I kind of started to think maybe All of these people weren't going to hell, and maybe they weren't wrong, and maybe they deserved the same freedoms and the same opportunities that I had. I had a really good friend who kind of started getting me into politics, and I moved to Minnesota, and we're very politically engaged people up here. And uh, I started really getting behind the ideas of Bernie, and I just kind of, like, took the blinders off and started getting more informed and reading different articles and listening to podcasts like yours. And I kind of realized that this was the stuff that made sense to me and that it felt a lot better than the identity that I was associating myself with back in my really conservative days. And so, uh, yeah, I ended up knocking on doors for Bernie. I was uh, lucky to be chosen as a delegate to the state convention for bernie sanders we did some really cool stuff there and even though we didn't win um i just think it's been a really insightful and amazing journey and i just wanted to thank i guess people like you and people like my friends who didn't write me off right away but were gentle with me and realized that i was a person who maybe was going to be able to change my mind um so yeah, it's really cool. I I uh, just want to thank you for that. And also maybe that can encourage those of us who think that everything is so polarized right now that there's no chance that anyone would be able to have a change of heart or that anyone would be able to change their mind. <laughs> yes, um, I think it's possible. And I think kind of my whole thought on, on having difficult conversations these days has been just to keep your eyes and ears open. For those of us who maybe have been on the fence, but we're a little bit afraid to really open up to the idea of being wrong, but that we are out there, and that maybe we're willing to be uncomfortable if it means doing something for the betterment of the whole, and that that could be a real success story. And I think that there's a lot of millennials out there like me who maybe weren't sure, maybe are a little disenfranchised, but also don't like the way things are going and so are willing to to make a change but we just have to be mindful that those people are out there and be hopeful and be willing to have conversations and so anyway yeah thanks again for what you do and uh i'm going to keep supporting you and best of the left and i'll keep telling my friends all right thank you
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I have a bonus clip for you to play uh, that I I I received from a listener. I I didn't know about this myself. I didn't go find it. I haven't been planning on playing this. uh, But a a listener said... Hey, you should check this out. And uh, just to add to the conversation about the pro-choice litmus test in the Democratic Party, uh, first, I have another message that came in from a listener via email rather than voicemail. And so Pat wrote in, and the the driving push of the message was that there should not be a litmus test. And I just wanted to share—unfortunately, the email is too long to read all of it, but I just want to share this one uh, story contained in it. So Pat writes, my father, a cradle Catholic and a good man, was against abortion until he read Freakonomics. It's been many years since I read it, but I believe one or two chapters were spent explaining that the legalization of abortion is responsible for the significant decrease in crime experienced in the U.S. since Roe v. Wade. It's back. It backed up this concept with statistics from several areas of study, and one by one, answered any theoretical arguments with convincing facts. This book and the approach it made showed my dad that abortion is a complex issue that requires more than a simplistic judgment of others. When good people are given the truth, they are much more inclined to make compassionate decisions at the ballot box. We have a better chance of rational discussion if we perceive ourselves as on the same side, the democratic side. So that was Pat's input, and the the clip I'm going to play is sort of making a similar case And I promise I am not putting my thumb on the scale in this discussion. I I am airing uh, all sides that uh, that are coming in. So let's hear this clip real quick. And then I have one more question for you guys.
14: Bruce Reed, Bill Clinton's domestic policy advisor and Joe Biden's former chief of staff, reminds us that not all Democratic voters care about the same issues or have the same beliefs.
0: Not everybody's going to have the same views in Missouri as they're going to have in New York State, and we can't expect everyone to toe every party line on everything. We need to have some core pillars of the Democratic faith that hold us together and that matter most. But the best way to win a district is to find a good candidate who fits the district, who can articulate the Democratic case in the native tongue with a lot of respect from the locals.
14: Bruce Reed's suggestion goes against the idea of what a lot of political types refer to as a litmus test. The notion that a democratic candidate should hold a certain set of views on a certain set of issues, or else the party shouldn't support them. I think litmus tests from people on the coast for people in the heartland are just by definition stupid. Van Jones again. Like, this is a very big country. It's not your 300 friends on Facebook. It's not the 3,000 people who are on your campus when you're in school. It's 300 million people. We're a continent-sized country. On one hand, Bruce is right when he says there are certain core pillars of the democratic faith that should hold us together. On the other, the idea that every democratic candidate should have the exact same position on every issue seems pretty hard to enforce. And more importantly, antithetical to our values as a party. After all, who gets to decide what those positions are? Party committees in D.C.? Certain activists and organizations? That doesn't seem very democratic. It's an issue that party leaders grapple with every campaign season. And when you get down to individual campaigns and candidates in different states, you tend to find a more nuanced conversation than you do on a national level.
16: I've never been one to turn my back on somebody because they identify as pro-life. I try to understand where they're coming from as a voter and as a politician. and try to understand that that one issue does not define their entire political career.
14: Jane Kleb is chair of the Nebraska Democratic Party. She's pro-choice and recently saw this debate play out in real time.
16: We have a lot of pro-life Democrats in our party, not only here in Nebraska, but at the national level. Obviously, Tim Kaine is probably one of the most high-profile pro-life Democrats within our party. And I think the issue of choice and, you know, how if you define yourself as pro-life is deeply personal and often complicated and is, for the vast majority of us as Americans, not a black and white issue and that we all usually have a deep personal reason of why we call ourselves pro-life or pro-choice. And Heath has a very personal reason.
14: Jane is referring to Heath Mello, who ran as a Democrat for mayor of Omaha, Nebraska in May of 2017. Heath was a member of the Nebraska legislature and is pretty liberal on just about every issue. Immigration, gay rights, climate change, unions, everything except abortion. Mello is a practicing Catholic who was born to a 16-year-old mother. And during his early years as a state legislator, he cast a number of anti-choice votes. But by 2012, his record changed, and he began his campaign for mayor with a 100% rating from Planned Parenthood. —
11: My good friend, Senator Bernie Sanders! —
14: Still, when Bernie Sanders came to Omaha to campaign with Mello during what was billed as a Democratic unity tour, pro-choice activists weren't happy even though Mello and people like Jane Klebb tried to argue that his personal beliefs wouldn't lead him to support restrictions on abortion.
11: Nero, a pro-choice group, called the DNC's backing of Mello, quote, politically stupid. The daily cause withdrew their endorsement.
14: Originally, DNC chair Tom Perez said, if you demand fealty on every single issue, then it's a challenge. After the controversy erupted, he released a statement that said, every Democrat, like every American, should support a woman's right to make her own choices about her body and her health. A month later, Mello went on to lose to an anti-choice Republican by six points. Here's Jane Club again.
16: I think people confuse that when we say that we welcome pro-life Democrats. With some people, they hear that we then want to make abortion illegal. And that's not true at all. I think as the Democratic Party, we have to continue to be very clear where we stand on that issue. There is no question that as a party, we believe that abortion should remain legal and that women are the ones who make decisions for their bodies, not some politician in D.C. or in Nebraska. At the same time, that doesn't mean that we think that pro-life Democrats don't have a seat at the table. They do. Just like pro-pipeline, Democrats have a seat at the table. And as a party... We have to decide, are we actually a party that is saying we welcome all of these ideas to make sure that we're actually strengthening our party? Because what I hear are excuses from some progressives where they say, oh, you know, conservative and moderate Democrats, pro-life Democrats, they make our party weaker. From my perspective, probably because I know a lot of conservative and moderate and pro-life Democrats, (laughs) I think they make our party stronger. They make our bills more durable. They're bringing voters who are not all progressive in our country to the table with their ideas.
18: Look, the Democratic Party is a pro-choice party. That is who we are. That's what we're about. But if we say no pro-life people, then we wouldn't have been able to pass the Affordable Care Act. That's just a fact. I mean, and also pro-life Democrats are people who tend to say, I will support comprehensive sex ed i will support prenatal care i'm not going to be supporting a transvaginal ultrasound they may say this is how i was raised this is what i believe but they're 10 times more reasonable on these issues than a pro-life republican who tends to be extreme and fundamentalist and doesn't even really care about the life of the mother so i think that you know we've got to take a slightly more nuanced approach here you're not going to get the most progressive person in every inch of this country some communities are going to have folks who have records that other communities wouldn't produce. So we've got to remember that we we've got to have some level of tolerance and nuance for the diversity of the country,
0: okay, so with all that said, I just have one last question for the pro litmus test side. And it's the same question that I ask to anyone who complains about having to vote within the two-party system and and insists on, on voting third party. It's the same question I had for the burn your bust crowd. The question is, what is your theory of change? And this is not rhetorical. I don't mean to suggest that there is not a theory of change that could be successful within the pro-litmus test side. Uh, we're not talking about principles. W- you you got me on principles. We agree. The problem is that principles without strategy... The problem is that principles without a winning strategy leave you nowhere. So we're, we're beyond principles. We're moving on to strategy and theory of change. So if you are in favor of a Democratic Party litmus test, what is the theory of change and strategy... go along with it that shows that this is the better way to get what we want in reality. Sticking up for our principles is great, but being able to enact those principles through politics is imperative. So we've heard the argument for why not having a litmus test is better. And, and it's sort of a range of democratic politicians, including very progressive ones, have said, look, strategically, we need to not have a litmus test. I am positive that there is a countervailing strategy, a countervailing narrative on the other side. I just don't know what it is, and if you come down on the side of having a litmus test, I think that it is imperative that you know what it is and that you know this is the strategy I'm following. Because if there's no strategy to back up your principles, I think it's really hard to defend that decision then. And like I said, I'm sure there is a strategy there. I just don't know what it is. I'm not asking a a rhetorical question or trying to back anyone into a corner. I I just actually want to know what that strategy is. So if you have thoughts on that, if if you have an idea of how a pro-litmus test policy can Help strategically empower the pro choice side. Please call in and let us know or email me directly. The number, again, 202-999-3991, or you can email me directly, j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every